Logan Lovell's Brexit podcast. I'm Susan Bright, the firm's managing partner for the UK and Africa and leader of our Brexit task force. As you can imagine, Brexit has somewhat taken over my work life since the UK voted to leave the EU back in June 2016. Since then, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what Brexit will mean for our clients, for businesses, for the UK, for the EU and for the rest of the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was part of our Navigating the Negotiations webinar series, which we've been running throughout 2017. You can find the slides that accompany the webinar and much, much more about Brexit on our hub at hoganlovells.com forward slash Brexit. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast and make sure that you know when our next episode is released. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest Hogan Lovell's Brexit webinar. This is the first in our new series, Navigating the Negotiations. My name is Susan Bright. I'm the managing partner for the UK and Africa here at Hogan Lovell's and the leader of our Brexit task force. Yesterday, the 29th of March, was an historic day as we witnessed Sir Tim Barrow, UK's permanent representative in Brussels, hand over the letter from Prime Minister Theresa May to Donald Tusk, President of the European Council. So the countdown to Brexit has begun. Today I'm joined by my colleagues Charles Brasted, who leads our public law and policy practice, and Lourdes Catrane, who's the leader of our international trade practice, and both are members of our Brexit task force. So what are we going to cover today? Article 50 is triggered and what you need to know. So our agenda is we're going to start with a summary timeline, then talk a little bit about the exit process, the parties' respective starting positions, how the negotiations will be conducted, have a little look at a no-deal scenario, ask ourselves the question, are the negotiations the only show in town? And then think a little bit about what businesses should be doing now. So moving on to a summary timeline. Well, on the 23rd of June last year, there was a referendum vote for the UK to leave the EU. And yesterday, Article 50 was triggered, and that governs the process for a member state to leave the EU. And obviously, this is the first time that that process has been undertaken. So Theresa May met her self-imposed deadline of triggering Article 50 by the end of March. There have, of course, been a few bumps in the road. Uh, first of all, the challenge through the courts uh, leading to the EU Notification of Withdrawal Act, a, uh, an act with an operative clause of only 52 words, but one with momentous significance. So now we're at the stage of the two-year negotiation of a withdrawal agreement, and that will lead to what we call here Brexit Day, and that day will be on or before the 29th of March 2019, unless the period for negotiation is extended. After that, things become a little bit more fuzzy, but we've tried to keep clarity on this timeline. Uh, in a post-Brexit world, we do know that there will be a great repeal bill will come into effect. 
and there will be a new trading relationship uh, between the UK and the EU. Theresa May in her letter refers to a deep and special partnership uh, which takes in both economic and security cooperation and we'll have to see whether that transpires. So moving on to the exit process. Article 50 uh, sets out the process for exiting the EU and we're going to look both at timing and at scope. So first, in relation to timing. So, as I just said, the withdrawal negotiations must be concluded within two years from yesterday, and any extension of that period of time requires uh, the unanimous, unanimous agreement of the UK and the remaining 27 EU member states. Until the point of withdrawal, the UK obviously remains a member of the EU uh, and subject to the obligations of membership. Um, but it's important to remember, uh, and important for negotiating strategy of course, um, that the UK's exit at the end of the process is not dependent on a deal. Article 50 provides that the treaties shall cease to apply from the date of entry into force of the withdrawal agreement or failing that two years after the, after the notification, unless, of course, that time period is extended. Um, but there is significant concern at the prospect of a cliff edge, i.e. no deal, um, and the view uh, expressed by the UK Foreign Affairs Committee certainly is that that scenario would be a very destructive outcome leading to mutually assured damage for the EU and the UK. And it is certainly something uh, that Theresa May in her letter is striving to avoid. Whilst the timing in some ways is a little uncertain, the scope uh, is also contentious. Article 50 itself uh, is about a withdrawal agreement, negotiating a withdrawal agreement and the terms on which a member state leaves the EU. Article 50, though, does provide that those withdrawal negotiations must take account of the framework for the UK's future relationship with the EU. And I think there's going to be a lot of interest about what such a framework looks like. The UK itself hopes, and it's clear from Theresa May's letter, to bring together and negotiate simultaneously the terms of exit and the future relationship. And it's clear, as we'll come on to, that the EU has a different view of that process. But in terms of what might be within each category, in the blue boxes you can see that the sorts of things that are likely to be included within a withdrawal agreement are resolving issues such as what to do with unspent EU funds, the UK's outstanding liabilities, arrangements for individuals, so EU citizens in the UK and vice versa, and other obligations uh, relating to um, uh, obligations deriving from EU law. Border arrangements, particularly between Northern Ireland and the Republic, are highly important and the possibility of some transitional arrangements in order to ease the path from the current uh, place uh, to the new brave new world. And finally, of course, uh, some method of resolving disputes uh, that arise within the withdrawal process. 
on the right-hand side are the sorts of things that might be included within a future relationship or partnership, as Theresa May uh, wishes to call it. So access to the single market and on what terms, customs arrangements, mutual recognition of regulation, cooperation in future products, and so forth. And of course, security is another thing that has been put on the agenda. The link, if you like, between these two is the fact that the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement must take account of the framework for the UK's future relationship. But quite, as I say, what that looks like is untested and unknown. What is very important is that um, the terms of the withdrawal agreement um, must be approved by resolutions of the European Parliament by simple majority and the Council by what's called a super-qualified majority, which requires 72% of member states, also comprising 65% of the EU population. And the UK government has also indicated that it will put the final deal uh, to a vote in both houses of parliament before the deal is voted on by the European Parliament. So that's the terms for approval of a withdrawal agreement. In contrast, for a future relationship, um, it is likely that that will require approval by the European Parliament by simple majority and by the Council, likely by unanimity, as well probably ratification by each of the remaining EU member states. Uh, so you can see that there's a difference between what's required for a withdrawal agreement and what's required for a future relationship, and that plays very heavily into what happens next. So I'm now going to hand over to Charles, uh, who will start by looking at the party's respective starting positions. Thank you, Susan. Um, in, in diligently preparing for this webinar, I looked at some newspapers, uh, and I was particularly taken by the Daily Telegraph, because it had a headline uh, for an article, and the headline was, Every Brexit Question Answered. Uh, the sad news is I didn't get time to read all of it, so I can't make quite such an ambitious promise uh, today. Uh, but my more realistic ambition is that what we talk about in the next uh, half an hour or so will help to identify some of the questions and how they might be answered over time. As Susan indicated already, before we get to the substance of any future relationship, or partnership, there are very important questions about what might sound like mere process, about scope, timing, and sequencing, which Susan has already talked about. I think it is very important to recognize that those process issues are extremely important because they go to the heart of the prospects of getting a deal, what that deal will look like, and when it can be delivered because of the very point about timing and about voting requirements that Susan has mentioned. And it's therefore perhaps surprising that much of the positioning by both sides um, over the last nine months has been about process rather than about substance. That said, the UK has perhaps said more about substance and its ambitions for the future. It has set out very clearly before now what it has described as red lines, uh, those relating to immigration control, uh, the direct jurisdiction 
of the Court of Justice of the European Union and its freedom to make trade deals around the world. And Theresa May had been clear even before yesterday that the UK recognised that that meant it could not remain within the single market or within the existing customs union. Theresa May had also been clear before yesterday that what the UK seeks is the maximum possible access. And of course, that is the very conundrum uh, that the next two years will seek to address. The EU has talked much less about what it wants or how it sees a future relationship with the, e with the UK, and much more about the process of the next two years. Its position being that withdrawal terms must be agreed first, that negotiations will be sequential, and on substance, that the four freedoms, including of movement of people, are sacrosanct and that there may be no cherry-picking. If there is a, a positive word to say about the respective parties of the two positions before yesterday, it might be that both appear to have acknowledged the likelihood and importance of a transitional or implementation phase, even if they weren't willing to agree to the same words. So that's where we were up to yesterday. Let me talk a little bit about how we see uh, the UK's notification letter. And talk about that under, under really three headings, as you'll see on the slides. One is um, the issue of tone. The second is the articulation of priorities. And the third is an interesting nod to domestic issues contained within it. I think that there is a widespread view, certainly within the UK, that the tone of the letter was notably positive and enthusiastic as to a future partnership, somewhat in contrast to some of the divisive comments made on both sides over the last few months. Although I note that the reaction to the letter on the continent, which Lourdes may talk about in due course, has not necessarily been to see it in quite such a, a warm, friendly light. Three elements of that tone. One is an emphasis not only on shared interests, which a lot of which is about economics, but also about shared values. Uh, there was a criticism made of the UK over the entirety of this Brexit discussion uh, that, we all were, that the UK always talked economics, whereas Europe talked politics. Um, there is a clear message here that our relationship is about more than economics and that geopolitical considerations and cultural values are an important part of the basis for that future relationship. Wrapped up in that, of course, has been an indication of the importance of security um, as part of that relationship, something that has perhaps riled some on the continent. The second important tonal aspect of the letter is the emphasis on putting citizens first. Um, and connected with that, minimizing disruption and uncertainty for citizens and indeed businesses uh, in, in all jurisdictions across, across the EU. And, and that is, when we talk about putting citizens first, uh, that is not merely rhetoric, but also again about timing and process. Theresa May has been clear 
uh, that the UK would like to see a deal on citizens' rights at an early stage. As regards disruption uncertainty more generally, there was a very clear uh, recognition of business concerns in that area in the notification. And an interesting choice of words moving on from the debate about transition and implementation to talk about the idea of the regulatory evolution that will follow Brexit. The letter confirms the UK's main priorities, uh, essentially those that I've already mentioned and that Theresa May had set out in her Lancaster House speech some weeks ago. What was new was the, uh, the branding of that, no longer simply future arrangements, but a deep and special relationship, a phrase that is used in the letter six times. And nearly as popular a phrase used four times in the letter was uh, the, the, the assertion that the new relationship would have to be negotiated alongside questions of withdrawal. And that goes to the heart of the message in this letter, which is that there is one, one package to be agreed and withdrawal issues are wrapped up in what our future relationship would look like, as acknowledged in Article 50 itself, when it talks about needing to take account of the framework for that relationships. And last of all, domestic issues. For a letter sent to the EU, it said a lot about what was going to happen in the UK. It talked about the Great Repeal Bill, again reflecting and focusing on the certainty uh, needed and the transitional process. Um, uh, and this is a reminder of the importance that the UK is attaching uh, to uh, that transitional process, uh, but also a reminder to all of us that that domestic process is a core part of the Brexit negotiations. The other big domestic issue to which there was a nod uh, was, of course, uh, the devolution challenges uh, that the UK government faces at home. Uh, and this is where the domestic audience was most in focus with a very obvious bright orange carrot offered to devolved administrations that as power was retaken from Brussels, a significant part of that would be devolved on to those devolved administrations. All of that domestic talk in this EU-focused no um, notification is a reminder that at a domestic level, policy and political choices will have to be made in parallel to the EU negotiations. So very briefly, uh, a little bit about what that deep and special partnership will be. Susan has mentioned some of these issues before, and, and as I say, I think that um, what, what, what one can take uh, from the notification is the bringing together of all of these elements into one package. To put that message in different terms, Theresa May was saying, this is no divorce. The key question, of course, remains how to square the circle of leaving the single market and the customs union, which we say we respect uh, the EU's position on the fundamental principles of those, but nevertheless seeking and agreeing 
a new relationship that maintains a large part of that access and not dissimilar customs arrangements within a different trade agreement framework. Lordes is going to talk about how those trade agreements can come about uh, and I hope may also be able to tell us a little bit about what the EU uh, sees as the likely price to be paid, as the EU might see it, by the UK uh, for that special relationship. Lordes. Thank you, Charles. Susan has provided a very good overview of the timeline for the next two years of negotiations. Let's now quickly run over of what is going to happen in Brussels just only in the next month. As you can see from the slide, there's going to be a lot of activity because the EU institutions need to agree on the on a very basic element of the forthcoming negotiations, that is the guidelines for the negotiations. Article 52 provides that the agreement shall be negotiated in accordance with Article 218 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And this Article 218 sets up a procedure that clearly involves the roles of the Council the European Council, and the European Commission. So now that Article 50 has been triggered, as I said, the European Council will have to adopt these guidelines required to, by Article 52. And what these guidelines will do will define the framework for negotiations under Article 50, and they will set out the overall positions and principles that the EU will pursue throughout the negotiation. It is expected, as you can see from this timeline, that they will be adopted at the meeting of the European Council on 29th of April. I am not going to go over each step, but as you can see, there is going to be a lot, a lot of activity over the next coming weeks. Now, Let's go over of how these negotiations will be conducted. This slide shows what is the expected role of the three EU institutions involved in the trade negotiations on the basis of Article 218. So following the adoptions of the guidelines, which we are expecting for the 29th of April, the European Council will invite the General Affairs Council to formally open negotiations. At the same time, the Council of the European Union will adopt what is called negotiating directives that will, among other things, govern the relationship between the Council and the Union negotiator. It is expected that these Council directives will do the following. First, they will nominate the European Commission as the Union negotiator and they welcome the European Commission's appointment of Michel Barnier as the lead negotiator. They will require Michel Barnier to integrate a representative of the rotating presidency of the Council into his team. The rotating presidency is currently held by Malta, but from 
30th of June, it will be held by Estonia. They will also require a representative of the President of the European Council to be present and participate in a supporting role in all negotiating sessions along the side the European Commission representatives. Donald Tusk has announced that the DSOs, a former advisor to former Council President von Rompuy, will be the European Council's negotiating representative. Very importantly, they are also going to require Michel Barnier to report to the European Council and to the Council about the progress and to keep the European Parliament closely and regulatory informed throughout the negotiation. The European Parliament has already announced that the former Belgian Prime Minister, Guy Verhofstadt, will be the lead negotiator. They are going to involve also you know, a number of committees, including the very uh, powerful committee, the Ambassador's Committee in Brussels, the Corepair. And there will be a dedicated working party with a permanent chair to ensure that the negotiations will be conducted in line with the European Council guidelines and provide also guidance to the union negotiator. Following yesterday's triggering of Article 50, the European Council issued a statement in which it set out key matters for an orderly withdrawal seeking to minimize the uncertainty for the European citizens, the businesses, and member states while hoping that the UK will remain a close partner in the future. Susan has provided a very a good overview also on the difference on the approval processes of the two agreements, that is to say the withdrawal agreement and what we learned from yesterday's Mrs. May speech, what is going to be a deep a special relationship, which is going to be some sort of free trade agreement. Uh, so I am not going to go over the differences as far as the voting and the approval requirement is concerned, but I would like to point out on a very important matter, and that is the go going to be the role of, and the approval of the member states. So most likely both agreements will require the approval of the EU, EU member states individually in accordance with their domestic constitutional requirements because both agreements are likely to address issues for which the EU and its member states share competence. We saw the importance of member state approval last October with the EU-Canada Free Trade Agreement. Now, let's just go over quickly on, on the various roles of the institutions as shows in this slide. So you, have, you can see that the, we have the three institutions, the European Commission, the Council, and the European Parliament. And the three institutions, as I explained, you know, they are going to be in very close cooperation. The Commission will submit a recommendation to the Council. The Council is going to adopt a decision to authorize the opening of the negotiations. The European Commission is going to represent the EU during the negotiations. So what this shows is the importance of the team which will be led by Michel Barnier in these negotiations. 
The Council can adopt, and this is important, you know, revised or new negotiating directives at any time during the negotiations. The, the Council and the Commission are jointly responsible for checking out, you know, what, that the negotiations are compatible, you know, with the directives and, of course, EU policies and law. At the end of the negotiations, the Council will adopt a decision on the signature of these agreements. And in some cases, and this could be, I think, you know, very, very important also in terms of what, what type of transitional deal will be, uh, will be agreed, there is a possibility of a decision on the provisional application of the agreement. The Council will adopt a final decision to conclude the agreement, and this and this is very, very important, can be done only once the European Parliament has given its consent. So, Susan and Charles have referred about, you know, the, the, what we call the no-deal scenario. So what will happen if there's no-deal scenario? Well, if there's no agreement between the EU and the UK, the the terms of the agreement of the WTO trade the WTO the World Trade Organization will be the only rules applying to trade between the EU and the UK. The UK is a member of the WTO in its own rights, having signed and ratified the Marrakesh Agreement in 1994. However, as a member state of the European Union and part of the EU's common commercial policy, the UK, in essence, you know, has been operating under the EU schedules of convenience for the WTO perspective, which sets out the limits for the EU tariffs and quotas. With regard to the tariffs, after withdrawing from the EU, the UK will be required to submit its own tariff schedule before the WTO, and it will not benefit from the EU's reduced tariffs, or let's call it preferential access, with other countries under the EU 50 or so trade agreements. Under the most favored nation rules, both the UK and the EU will need to treat each other in the same way that they treat all other WTO members with which the EU does not have a free trade agreement. In other words, EU tariffs will apply to the UK and vice versa. According to the WTO rules, such new schedules by the UK will be adopted if none of the WTO's other 163 member states object to them. Thus, in order to achieve a smooth transition and minimize the risk for objections and disruption, the UK is likely to replicate the existing EU's tariff schedules as far as possible. This approach will, will have a wrinkle or two with regard to quotas, given that other WTO members may not necessarily accept a simple division of the quotas between the UK and the EU. This is particularly important in the agricultural sector. For instance, agricultural exporters uh, like Brazil and Argentina may wish to have better access to the UK market. That there may have been, there may be some renegotiations not only between the EU and the UK, but also between those and other WTO members. Let's now move to non-tariff barriers. 
And this is one of the main questions that arise in this area is that of mutual recognition of the standards. As you know, it is a prerequisite of accessing the single market that goods must comply with EU rules and exporters must ensure and prove that their goods are in conformity with such rules. So, if no trade deal between the EU and the UK is concluded, which, which would entail obligations on a standard harmonization, there will be no mutual recognition of the standards, given that the UK will withdraw from the single market and the customs union. So what does this mean from a practical perspective? Well, the practical consequences of a no deal will be that exports will be subjected to border checks, to customs controls, visual inspections, and physical testing that would certainly increase the cost of trading and affect just-in-time deliveries and overload border checks. I will now turn over to my colleague, Charles. Lourdes, th thank you very much for that, and thank you for taking the perfect amount of time to allow me quickly to read the transcript of um, the statement made by David Davis at uh, 12 o'clock today uh, to Parliament regarding the Great Repeal Bill, uh, which is what I was going to talk about uh, briefly now. Um, uh, if evidence was needed that that too is an important part of the process, the fact that that statement and the publication of the White Paper comes so soon after the notification is evidence enough. And David Davis made clear in his statement that the Great Repeal Bill process is, as he put it, integral to a smooth and orderly exit. Um, that is because it is the domestic mechanism that will convert existing EU law into domestic law, where practical and appropriate, and thereby provide the continuity and certainty at the point of Brexit uh, that uh, the UK government seeks to provide for citizens and businesses in the UK and indeed elsewhere. It is also, of course, uh, the mechanism by which some changes will be made in the starting phases of the regulatory evolution referred to in the notification. What we know is that that will be a substantial task um, uh, and that it is not a, a merely uh, mechanistic task. Uh, when the UK government has talked about transposing EU law where practical and appropriate, that caveat, or those two caveats, are extremely important. It is not practical and appropriate in respect of all EU law. Uh, and that leads me to, I think, what is the key point about this, which is that as part of the Great Repeal Bill process, by which we mean all of the domestic legislative program needed to give effect to Brexit, starting now, going through to Brexit Day and beyond, Policy choices, and indeed political choices, will be being made by the UK government and, of course, by the UK Parliament. There will be aspects of EU law that can be transposed without change, if the UK government likes them. There will be others that can't. There will be new regulatory bodies needed to perform functions currently performed by EU bodies, if that relationship with the EU body is not going to continue. And that last point uh, leads into uh, the important recognition that 
the way in which those choices are made will be wrapped up in the negotiations that will be ongoing over the next two years. And as businesses and lawyers monitor what's happening under the Great Repeal Bill and other related legislation, one thing to watch out for will be what progress, if any, is being made on the establishment of new bodies in particular sectors and what that may tell you about the true state of negotiations or the UK government's objectives in that sector. If no progress is being made on the establishment of a regulatory body in the UK, um, that may be an indication of where the UK government is realistically hoping to end up in terms of an ongoing relationship with an EU uh, agency. Uh, one other thing uh, that uh, the, uh, the Great Repeal Bill uh, is intended to do, uh, as indicated in the white paper published today, is to deal with the important question of the role of the CJEU in future, uh, one of the red line areas that we discussed at the beginning. And what the white paper says is that the CJEU will have no role in UK jurisdiction post-Brexit. That is not quite as simple as all that. Uh, there are two slightly more complicated points. One is that the, the bill will nonetheless preserve the existing jurisprudence up to the point of exit, so that to the extent that we transpose EU law into domestic law at the point of Brexit, the uh, accumulated jurisprudence of the CJU up to that date regarding those provisions will remain relevant to the UK courts application and interpretation of those newly domestic provisions. And of course, the fact that the CJU will not have a direct role in UK jurisdiction does not mean that it may not be given some sort of role under the terms of any future agreement, whether on specific issues or more generally. As regards the Great Repeal Bill process, two very quick points. Um, you, will, you will be, I'm sure, aware of the, the controversy regarding the powers that the government is seeking uh, to give to uh, change law by secondary legislation, so with significantly reduced parliamentary oversight, uh, given recent uh, uh, difficulties with parliamentary oversight in, in the context of Brexit. Um, David Davis was at pains uh, to explain the, uh, the, the constraints on that power, both in terms of the limits of when it can be applied, the way it would be operated, and a time limit or sunset clause on its availability. Uh, so a clear recognition of the controversial nature of those so-called Henry VIII uh, powers. Um, so, so that's really the process from here, um, and the point to take away is that monitoring that process will be a key uh, to understanding the broader process. Um, so very quickly, uh, before I hand back to Susan to, to conclude, what should businesses be doing now? We've set it out on the slide. You might get the message. We say that now is the time to engage. Uh, do it now. Do it often. Um, let me make two slightly more nuanced points uh, about that, if I may. Um, one is, uh, don't forget the legislation. We've just talked about that. But also, don't forget the rest of Europe. 
um, where engagement is going to be equally important. This is not a negotiation between two parties. It is not a negotiation with the UK government and business. It is a negotiation between at least 28 parties with their own interests. It is important to recognise that in your engagement. And it's important because engagement serves two purposes. One is to tell, to explain what your priorities are and make sure they're understood and are the priorities of those negotiating. But also, it's part of the feedback loop that helps you understand what is going on, gathering intelligence about what is truly going on so you can feed that into your own planning and strategy. The other point uh, to make is about using the UK processes that we've talked about. Um, two things. One is that legislative great repeal bill process provides well-known mechanisms for you to engage with government and legislators, which won't be so readily available to you as the EU negotiations are going on between states. So those are a way in to some of the substantive issues. The other point, just to come back finally to something that was said in the, the Article 50 notification yesterday, uh, is um, uh, the approach that the UK government is going to take as we understand it in the coming, uh, the coming months. There was much emphasis in the letter about technical talks needing to start as soon as possible. And Theresa May said, uh, in essence, UK officials will be ready to engage in detailed technical talks where they will come forward with proposals on how the special relationship should work. We all know that they are working on those proposals. They are not complete. They need all of the technical know-how, commercial input, and frankly, bandwidth that you and we together can offer them to develop credible solutions to put into those negotiations, into those technical talks in the coming weeks. Susan. Charles, thank you, and thank you for dealing so calmly uh, with the breaking news of the white paper being published while we were live. So I'm just going to finish with how Hogan Levels can help by pointing you to our, our Brexit resources. Um, do please visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hoganlevels.com backslash Brexit. This contains our latest thinking on the legal issues, um, including our uh, Brexometer, which is a recently launched survey measuring the sentiment of business leaders from around the world about the impact of Brexit on their businesses and their thoughts going forward. There's also regular blogs and some sector analysis for particular industries. You can also sign up for our Brexit bulletin email using the button at the top of the page. And if you want to ask questions or discuss the impact on your own business, please feel free to contact us with questions um, at the email addresses on the slide. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter or join in the conversation at hashtag Brexit Effect. So just to finish, um, a recording of this will be made available and circulated to you all. And we will let you know um, the date of our next uh, webinar about navigating the negotiations in due course. I'd just like to conclude by thanking Charles and Lourdes and thanking all of you very much for joining us today.